Before we come to Psalm 111, I just want to offer up a word of prayer. This is from Psalm 19. Let's pray. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we are gathered together under your word this afternoon. And we confess with the psalmist that your word is perfect, it is sure, it is right, it is pure. And so we ask that as we hear your word today, that you would revive our souls, that you would make us wise, that you would fill us with joy, and that you would enlighten our eyes. We ask it for Jesus' sake, in whose name we pray. Amen. So I promised that we'd do a, a little mini-series here in the Psalms, and I gave a bit of an introduction last week to the Psalms, and I mentioned the fact that the Psalms are divided up into five books, and this reflects the five books of Moses. So in that sense, there's a relationship between Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and the five books of the Psalms. One way I've heard this described is the fact that in Torah, in the law, those five books, we have God speaking to us. And the Psalms give us God's inspired response. So we've got the five books of Moses, God speaks to us, and the Psalms are the five books of our response to him. They, they teach us how to pray. They teach us how to speak back to God. They teach us how to, to sing, how to praise God. And I mentioned the fact that the Psalms are very theological. There's lots of good theology in the Psalms. They are God-centered. I think this is obvious. And they celebrate who he is. They celebrate his character. They celebrate his great acts in history. They look forward to his judgments and the fulfillment of his promises for his people. So they're deeply theological. And many of them are songs. Many of them are, are sung. And you'll notice that in some of the superscriptions, that little bit written at the top, it often says, to the choir master. Or it gives them specific instructions about which instruments should be played to accompany the singing of this song. So they're songs. And they, they, they should teach us something about what our songs should look like. I don't agree with some of the, the stricter reformers in the 16th century that we should only have the Psalter as our songbook in the church. I think it's fitting and right that we, we write new songs and sing new songs. I think that's just a reflection of the ongoing faithfulness and mercy of God, that we sing new songs all the time to celebrate that. Even so, the Psalms should guide the way that we write our songs, and they are deeply theological, and that's important. I think Luther said, and Luther parted ways with the crowd in Switzerland. Luther was all for music. Let's keep writing songs. That's why a lot of the early hymns are written by Germans. You may notice their names on there, these German names. But he was all for singing in church. But he, he warned us. He said, theology is king, but music is queen. Music is queen. And what he meant by that is, first of all, the way the church communicates its theology, sings its theology, is through music. On the other hand, it's a warning about the content of our singing, because what we sing really says something about what we believe. So I tend to be quite strict. We tend to be the, the pastors at Westminster Chapel about which songs we sing or don't sing. It's, it's important. It's very important what you sing. And the song that we have before us today is a song. 
It's a song of praise. In many ways, the Psalms are a manual of song. Uh, songs, uh, these are songs of praise. It begins with a Hebrew phrase, a Hebrew word actually, hallelujah. And that means praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. It begins with an exhortation, a commandment actually. We're, we're commanded to do this. Praise the Lord. And then it goes on to outline for us why it is we ought to praise the Lord. So there's the commandment there. Then the psalmist says himself, I myself will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. He commands us to, to praise God. He himself then does it. He praises God. But then the psalm gives us, it recounts the reasons why we praise God. So we need to consider that today as we consider this psalm. And secondly, it also, it's still Torah. This psalm is still teaching us. And it teaches us not only why we ought to praise God, but it also teaches us how we ought to praise God. It's actually a very practical psalm. It's a very practical instruction on not only why we praise God, but how we praise God. So I just consider these two aspects of the psalm this morning. First of all, why is it that we praise God? Secondly, how? How do we praise God? In many ways, the psalm is just a verse-by-verse recitation of reasons why we ought to praise God. Look at verse 2. We praise God because his works are great. Verse 3, we praise God because his work is full of splendor and majesty. His righteousness endures forever. Verse 4, we praise God because he has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. He is gracious and merciful. Verse 5, we praise the Lord because he provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. Verse 6, we praise God because he has shown his people the power of his works and giving them the inheritance of the nations. Verse 7, we praise the Lord because the works of his hands are faithful and just. His precepts are trustworthy. Verse 8, we praise the Lord because his precepts are established forever and ever. Finally, in verse 9, we praise the Lord because he sent redemption to his people. He commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. This is a psalm that celebrates God's character. It celebrates his works. And it celebrates his word, his precepts, his character, his works, and his word. But the focus of the psalm is on his works. It's a psalm that recounts and celebrates and impels us, calls on us to praise God because of his mighty works. And scholars debate amongst themselves about how best to analyze this psalm, how best to carve it up and distinguish the different parts of it. But I think we can roughly identify in verses 2 to 3, celebration for God's works of creation. And then in verses 4 to 7, celebration for God's works of redemption. So we have creation and redemption. God's works of both are celebrated there. Verses 2 and 3, works of creation. Verses 4 to 7, works of redemption. But I think we could probably read right through and sing right through verses 2 to 7 with God's works of creation in view, and that would be fine. Likewise, we could sing right through verses 2 to 7 with God's great works of redemption in view. So I don't want to make too hard and fast a distinction. But usually most scholars, and if you look at the sermons throughout the history of the church, the way that preachers have handled this text, they usually focus on God's works of creation in verses 2 and 3. Now if you go into... 
the laboratory at the University of Cambridge. It's called the Cavendish Laboratory. It's part of the Department of Physics at the University of Cambridge. When you enter into the main building there, and you enter into the Cavendish Library, you'll find written over the doorway of the entrance into the Cavendish Library, Psalm 111, verse 2, written there. Now, it was the case that this was a very old Department of Physics at the University of Cambridge, and for centuries you had that inscription over the entrance written in Latin. But in 1973, there was a renovation. They built a new building, a new laboratory. And one of the students at the time, who was a Christian, went to a member of the faculty of the Department of Physics, and he asked the professor if he would make an appeal to whatever committee in the university looks after these things, to have Psalm 111, verse 2, re-inscribed over the new doorway to the Cavendish Library. And the professor was sympathetic to the student's request. I don't know whether the professor was a Christian or not. But he assumed, yeah, I'll bring this to the committee, but it's going to be struck down right away, because of course we're not going to have scripture over top of the entrance into the, into the laboratory. However, much to the surprise of the professor and the rejoicing of the student, it was. It was granted. Everyone in the committee said, yes, let's do that. And it's not written in Latin anymore. If you go there today, it's not a nice old building like you may associate buildings at Cambridge. It's newer. And it's written in, in uh, Coverdale's translation. Coverdale was one of the first people after Tyndale to translate the Bible into English. And you'll read over there, over the entrance into the Cavendish Laboratory, the works of the Lord are great, sought out of all them that have pleasure therein. Here we have, right in verse 2, a celebration of the fact that the works of the Lord are great, his works of creation, and they give us pleasure. They delight us. And this is what the psalm is pointing out. This is what the psalm is celebrating. Not only that God's works of creation are great, but they delight us. They're a cause of delight. And it's actually this delight in God's work of creation which motivates scientific inquiry. People get excited about this kind of thing. I don't know how many of you are scientists or study science, chemistry or biology. If you ever talk to a physicist, they get very excited about things that you may not find that excited, but they're delighted in God's works of creation. And this delight is actually inherent in God's work of creation. There's a little verse that we tend to pass over in Genesis chapter 2, the description of God's creation of the garden, and we're told there, out of the ground, this is Genesis 2 verse 9, out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. Now we tend to think of the trees in the garden, good for food. That may say something about us. We're usually led by our stomachs. But it also happens to say, pleasure to the sight. The trees in the Garden of Eden weren't only good for food. They were pleasant to look at. They were a delight to look at. Now, as a little boy, I grew up in an area, actually not far from here, just outside Stouffville. So if you just boot along King Road East, eventually you do a little, you jog down to Stouffville Road, Take that all the way to Stouffville. Keep going through Stouffville, and you'll get to a little hamlet called Altona. Altona, and that's where I grew up. And because we lived out of town, a lot of my friends at school would often play with their friends in town, but I was out of town, so I was often left out of these kind of impromptu gatherings amongst little kids. So I just played by myself. I ran around in the farmer's fields. I remember the springtime was always the most exciting because that's when the ditches flood 
And you can just get your rubber boots on there and you drop things in and see where they go. And it, the ditch went down to a creek and I had lots of fun playing in the creek. I love the outdoors. And I found God's world, his creation, a delight. I have a little boy who's three. He'll turn four next Sunday. I'll be here preaching. I won't be with him. He turns four next Sunday. I have a little girl who just turned two in April. And already I'm seeing uh, this delight in God's creation in them. They love to be outside. They love running around with branches like I did as a kid. If it was windy, pull up a big branch and just run around with it. They're doing that all the time. And just recently, my little boy, and some of you that have boys, and some of you that are grown men, can probably relate to this. He's discovered the hose and the nozzle. And he just has a blast spraying things. And the other day, I was sitting out back reading, and he just sat there and sprayed the fence for about 20 minutes. You know, I finally just had to say, okay, that's enough. We have to ration the hose play. But he loves it. He just loves playing with water. And truth be told, so do I, even now. We have a very crummy old sprinkler that I bought when we first moved into our house. I think it was $6.99. Anyhow, it's garbage. And our lawn is starting to turn a bit brown, and my wife Megan's been bugging me. Let's, let's water the lawn. So I went to Canadian Tire the other day, and they had a beautiful sprinkler on sale. And this thing is amazing. Every little spigot you can adjust and have it just exactly how you want to go. I get pretty excited about doing that, setting that up, you know, looking at it. Okay, there. Gets a little bit of the garden there, but not the walkway, not the driveway. I love to play with water. I delight in that. And so does my son. And so does my little girl. Even the other day, I came home from church, and my son was sitting in the floor of the kitchen, and he had a big pitcher full of water, and he was dropping things in there. And he gets up, and he runs, greets me at the door, and he says, Daddy, guess what? Leaves float. Leaves float. He was dropping things in there. What floats? What doesn't float? Well, this is, he's three years old, but he's already kind of performing some science experiments there. He's acting like a scientist. And he's excited about this. He wants to tell me. Leaves float. He delights in it. So we see in God's works of creation a delight. And that delight actually motivates scientific inquiry. Even my three-year-old is starting to do this. Okay, water is a lot of fun to play with. There's different properties here. Let's see what sinks. Let's see what floats. So this tells us something about uh, God, the creator. Because his works are a delight, it tells us something about the creator of these works. The psalm tells us God is gracious and merciful. And we recognize even in the wind and the trees and the water, the fact that they cause us delight tells us something about their maker. This is a good creator, a gracious creator. The trees were a delight to look at. And in the garden, the fruit, yes, the fruit provide, provided nutrients and calories, and our food provides nutrient and calories. However, food also happens to taste good. It doesn't have to taste good. There's nothing that says it needs to taste good, but it tastes good. Trees are a delight to look at. The fruit provides us with nourishment, but it also tastes good. It's a delight. It's a delight. This tells us something about our Creator, and that delight is what motivates and drives scientific inquiry. In the context of this psalm, notice what happens. The, the delight, the inquiry, those who study them, delight in them, turns to praise. And we've got these three things. There's the delight, there's the inquiry, the science, but then there's also the praise and the worship. And sometimes it's said about Christians that we're against science or we don't believe in science or something like this. That's nonsense. Nothing could be further from the truth. It's just the, that Christians actually have 
a fuller view of science. Science, yes, is delight. Science is inquiry, but it's also praise and worship of the Creator. And many scientists and universities today, they have the delight, they have the inquiry, but that third piece is missing. It's not turned back to praise. They don't recognize the Creator. They don't recognize the goodness and the grace and the mercy and the delight that the Creator has in creating these things for us. So science is always liturgical in a sense. That means it's always connected to worship. And a fuller view of science, a complete view of science, includes delight, inquiry, and praise of the Creator. So we're not for uh, less science. We're for more science. Our concern is that in universities, physics departments, maybe even in the Cavendish Laboratory, there's a truncated view of physics there. There's delight, there's inquiry, but there's not the praise of the Creator. These are the works of creation that we see celebrated in verses 2 and 3. If we move on to verses 4 to 7, there we have the celebration of God's works of redemption now. His works of redemption. And his works of redemption are always closely tied to his word. The works of his redemption, the word of God. In verse 4 we read this, He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. But this section ends in verse 7 with, The works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. So there's a close relationship here between his works of redemption and his word. You can see this even if you read through the Exodus. There's a great act of redemption there, but there's also the giving of the law at Sinai. And the two always go hand in hand. But first, the works of redemption that are celebrated here. Verse 4 says that God caused his wondrous works to be remembered. This is one of the connections with, with the word. I think, in part, this may be a reference to the fact that there was quite an elaborate calendar, cycle of feasts in the Old Testament. You can read through, and all of these were full of meaning and significance. But one of the purposes of the feasts was that God's great works of redemption would be remembered. You celebrate these feasts every year, and you're celebrating God's acts of mercy. You're remembering them. On the other hand, I think what's primarily in view here is God's word itself. God has caused his acts, his works of redemption to be remembered by recording them in his word. That's how they're remembered. That's how we don't forget them. They're written down right here in the Bible. So there's a close connection between works of redemption and God's word. And it's very important that we move on from the delight in the works of creation and we move into God's word and we read about the account of redemption that we have here and the law that's given at Sinai. My son can celebrate trees, can take delight in water, but he's not going to learn about the triune God. He's not going to learn the gospel from playing with water. He's going to learn it from God's word. And I need to be teaching him God's word. It's a responsibility of parents, of elders, especially of fathers. We're called to teach God's word to recount the acts of redemption to our children. So verses 4 to 7 recount the great acts of redemption. And really there's one great moment of redemption that's in view here. And actually if you read through the Psalms, Psalm 111, Psalm 112, on to 113, 114, especially Psalms 113, 114, it's very clear that the exodus comes into view here. And this is the, the act of redemption that's primarily in view 
already in Psalm 111 here. Verse 4, I think, is a reference to the Exodus itself, God's deliverance of the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt. Verse 5 is a reference to the wilderness wanderings, those 40 years. And then verse 6 is a reference to the conquest of Canaan. This is the inheritance of the nations that is given to the people. So verse 4 says, He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. They're recorded in Scripture. They're remembered there. But also they're sung. So the Exodus, God's great act of deliverance and also his act of judgment on Egypt, is celebrated again and again and again. It's recounted again and again and again throughout Scripture, and especially in the Psalms. The Psalms are full of recounting the Exodus. And we see it here in this Psalm. And this means that part of our remembering, our recounting, is in song. This is a song. Remember what the Israelites did when they came through the the Red Sea. They sang a song. Exodus chapter 15. Listen to verse 11. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? They have just seen wonders. And what does verse 4 say? He has caused his wondrous works. He's caused his wonders to be remembered. They're remembered in song. And also, I think, they're remembered in the Passover meal. Of course, year after year, the people of Israel are remembering the Exodus through the Passover meal. In verse 5, then, we have the wilderness wanderings. God took his people out to the wilderness, to the desert, where there was no food, and he fed them there. And it says so. He provides food for those who fear him. Actually, even in the Hebrew there, food is more specifically meat. And remember, God provided quail for the people in the wilderness. Quail fell every day. They ate meat and the manna. And the manna was given to sustain them. Deuteronomy chapter 8 says that it was actually given also for another purpose. And the primary purpose for the manna was so that the people of God would learn that they don't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. They had to destroy whatever remaining manna was left. So they woke up every morning, every day, for 40 years, without any food. They had to trust in God. And I think most of us, I mean, we're used to this. We have refrigerators. We've got cupboards. We store food, naturally. When I go to bed, my breakfast is there. And I wake up in the morning and I make it. This was not the case for Israel in the wilderness. They had to destroy whatever remaining food there was and trust in God's word. This was cultivating a trust. Because they woke up every day trusting that God was going to feed them again. And he did. And notice this is the attitude of trust that, is called, that we're called to have when we pray the Lord's Prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. God fed his people in the wilderness. This psalm recounts that, celebrates that. It's one of the reasons why he's praised. Then we have the conquest of Canaan. And this is what verse 6 refers to. He has shown his people the power of his works in giving them the inheritance of the nations. God's power was demonstrated by the conquest of Canaan by the armies of Israel going in, destroying the inhabitants of the land. Remember in Genesis, these are referred to as seven nations, the Perizzites, the Hittites, etc. The nations, the inheritance of the nations was the promised land itself, and God's power was demonstrated when he gave Israel this promised, inherited land. Now this is probably a more difficult chapter in the history of redemption for many Christians today. 
I remember a few years ago, this was before we had kids, but Megan and I, for breakfast every morning, uh, were reading the Bible together, and we read through Joshua. And when you've just woken up, and you've got your cup of coffee there, and you're eating your cereal, the book of Joshua is not, not the kind of thing that really gets you going for the day. It's pretty heavy stuff. And then it actually gets worse if you read on to Judges. Judges is even worse, especially when you get to the end of it. And it's a very difficult chapter in the history of redemption for many Christians today. We're not sure what to do about that. And it seems harsh to us, and many critics of Christianity point to that. You know, this is, this is genocide. How can you believe in a God that would do such a thing? And there was a real temptation in the early church to set aside the Old Testament for that reason. Do we really believe in this God of wrath that would do such a thing? We'll just set that aside. All we need really is the New Testament. We don't need the Old Testament because it has stuff like that in it. But notice what the psalm says here. This is part of a song of praise to God. The psalmist is praising God for what happened in the book of Joshua. So the psalmist is not troubled by this. We're troubled by this, but the psalmist is not troubled by this. And the reason when he's not troubled by this is given to us in the very next verse. So in verse 6, we have the reference to the conquest of Canaan. In verse 7, there's the explanation. The works of his hands are faithful and just. Now, we may, this may be a stumbling block for us, the conquest of Canaan. But notice what God's word says about it. Notice what the psalmist says about it. The works of his hands, and he's just referred to the conquest of Canaan, The works of his hands are faithful and just. The reason that the psalmist can celebrate the conquest of Canaan and praise God. How many songs do you sing on a Sunday morning that talk about the conquest of Canaan? I'm guessing none. The psalmist celebrates this fact. Why? Because it's a demonstration of God's power, verse 6, but it's also a demonstration of his faithfulness and his justice. It's the theme of God's judgment a theme of God's wrath, which is in every book of the Bible. It's everywhere in the Bible. And notice that this is the people of God who celebrate and praise God for his justice, for his judgment, for the pouring out of his wrath. Think of the book of Revelation, for example. Revelation chapter 6, when the fifth seal is opened, we're told there, what John sees is the martyrs under the altar in heaven, and they're crying out to God, How long? until you avenge our blood and judge those who are persecuting your people. They're calling out for God's justice. They're calling out for his judgment. And many of the Psalms do the same. Many of the Psalms ask this question, how long? The third book of the Psalms, starting in Psalm 73, these are the Psalms of Asaph. And Asaph begins in Psalm 73. Again, I was reading this while drinking my coffee one morning. He's looking around, he sees all of the wicked are prosperous, they're successful, and he cries out to God, how long until you intervene and do something about this? Why do the justice, or why do the, the wicked prosper while your people suffer? The just suffer, the wicked prosper. And halfway through that psalm, he goes into the temple and he starts to meditate on all things on the last judgment. And he realizes, yes, on one day, God will, will act as judge. And then you read on the next psalm. It's of Asaph again, Psalm 74. Then he asks the question, okay, there will be a day of reckoning, a day of judgment. But then he asks, how long? 
How long will you wait to execute your judgment? And he calls on God, rise up. Rise up and judge. And then in Psalm 75, it begins with a call to thanksgiving. And then immediately it's interrupted and God speaks. Psalm 75 verse 2. And there God says, I have appointed a time for judgment. That's all he says. How long? God says, I've appointed a time for it. Then he goes on to say, in verses 3 and 4 of that psalm, he says to the boastful, stop boasting. He says to the wicked, stop lifting up your horn. It's a call to repentance. And that's why God is waiting. That's why Asaph asks how long. God says there's a time of judgment, but now is the time of repentance. Now I'm waiting. And of course, I am glad that he told Asaph to wait 3,000 years ago. I'm glad he told the martyrs in Revelation 6 to wait 2,000 years ago because we wouldn't be here this morning if he hadn't. This morning, this afternoon, if he hadn't waited. God's waited for us to come into his kingdom. That time of repentance was time for us to repent. But there is a time for judgment. And the Old Testament saints recognize this. This psalm recognized this. The time of judgment that was appointed for the Canaanites was when their wickedness had, had reached its full measure. In Genesis chapter 15, where God promises that land, the land of Canaan, to Abraham, he says, it will be delivered to you when the wickedness of the people there reaches its full measure. And that takes 400 years. They're in Egypt. But when it did reach its full measure, the time of repentance passed for the Canaanites, and God executed his justice. And the psalm says here, this was a demonstration of God's faithfulness to Abraham and his justice on the Canaanites. He gave time for repentance, but there was a time for judgment. And so the psalm celebrates this. This is a reason to praise God. The book of Joshua. It's a liturgical text. How many of us think of Joshua as a source book for worship? Well, that's what the psalmist says. Now, of course, when we read the Psalms and we read about redemption, we do pay attention to what the original congregations were singing. They were looking back to the Exodus. They were looking to the wilderness. They were looking to the conquest of Canaan. But, of course, when we read through and we we think about God's works of redemption... We have in view what we've had in view already this afternoon in all of the songs that we've been singing in the Heidelberg Catechism. By the way, I know I come from a church that's called Westminster Chapel. Just between us, I like the Heidelberg Catechism better than the Westminster Catechism. Both good. I just like the Heidelberg better. But these celebrate the work of redemption in Christ. And of course, as Christians, the church prays this psalm And we remember, yes, God's faithfulness to the Old Testament saints, but we have primarily in view the great work of redemption in the cross of Christ. And when we read, praise the Lord, who's the Lord? That's Jesus. All of these psalms that begin hallelujah, all of these psalms that begin praise the Lord, this is praise Jesus. Praise Jesus. And what we recount, what we celebrate and praise God for is the fact that he didn't judge us the way that he judged the Canaanites. That judgment passed over us because it fell on Christ. He bore God's wrath in our place. Remember Jesus cries out to his father in the Garden of Gethsemane, let this cup pass from me. That's the cup of wrath. Actually, Psalm 75 celebrates 
the pouring out of the cup of God's wrath on the wicked. Christ knows the hour before his death that that cup is about to be poured out on him. And even as he gets up from that prayer and Judas and the guards come, Peter pulls out his sword and he lops off the ear of Malchus. And in John's gospel, Jesus says to Peter, Peter, put away your sword. Has not the Father brought me to this hour to drink this cup? Am I not to drink the cup that the Father has given me? It's the cup of his wrath. It was poured out on him, not on us. God's judgment fell on Christ, not on us. The penalty for sin, he served, not us. And I like the way that John Calvin summarizes this in a very, a very pithy but rich paragraph. This is actually part of a section where he's talking about the Lord's Supper. This is a, a summary of the gospel right here. He calls it a wondrous exchange. The, estate, the, the exchange between Christ, the righteous one, and us, the sinners, the unrighteous. There's an exchange. He says this. This is the wondrous exchange made by his boundless goodness. By becoming the son of man with us, he has made us sons of God with him. By his descent to earth, he has prepared the way for our ascent to heaven. By taking on our mortality, he has bestowed his immortality upon us. By accepting our weakness, he has strengthened us by his power. By submitting to our poverty, he has transferred to us his riches. He has taken the burden of our unrighteousness upon himself and has clothed us with his righteousness. Psalm 111 celebrates the wondrous, majestic, gracious, merciful, faithful, and just works of God. And nowhere else are these more clearly demonstrated than in the cross of Christ and in the redemption that we have in his blood. This is why we praise God. The psalm recounts reasons why we praise God, but it also teaches us how we praise God. Again, this is a very practical psalm. It teaches us how we ought to praise God. And I find here, there's, there's probably more if you spent time meditating on this psalm, but I find here four practical points of teaching. It shows us how to praise God in four ways. First of all, right in verse 1, we give thanks to the Lord with our whole heart. How do we praise God? We praise God with our whole heart. Secondly, also in verse 1, we praise God in the congregation and company of the upright. How do we praise God? We praise God in the congregation and company of the upright. And thirdly, by practicing the fear of the Lord. By practicing the fear of the Lord, we praise God. And fourth, the entire psalm itself shows us how we praise God. The entire psalm is an act of remembrance. It remembers. It's recounting God's great works of redemption, of creation. And this is how we praise God. We remember what he's done. We recount his gracious and wondrous work. So first, the psalmist says, I will thank the Lord with my whole heart. We praise God with our whole hearts. Now when we, typically I think in our culture, our society, when we think of heart, we tend to think about emotions. We think about feeling. And there may be a temptation to read this verse and think, okay, worshiping God with my whole heart is worshiping God with all my emotions with all my feeling. I'm really going to get into it when I'm singing and really really feel this and be moved by it. 
That's not primarily what the psalmist has in view. It doesn't mean that's not part of it, but primarily that's not what's in view. When the Bible speaks of our emotions, it uses other body parts to refer to that, either the kidneys or the bowels. I think that's significant. Think about what the kidneys and bowels are used for. That tells us not to put too much of a priority on our emotions. I've heard it expressed this way. The emotions are not the engine of the train. They're, They're the caboose. They're the last car. So your emotions should always fall in line with your will, with your thoughts, with your actions. So primarily what's not in view here are emotions, but the heart is the center of our being. Even think of our bodies now. The heart's right there in the middle. It's the source of our, of our life, the blood. Our life flows from the center. It flows from the heart. And it, it fills the rest of the body and forms and, and enlivens everything that's happening there. And in that sense, uh, the heart is a reference to the center of our being. It's what's at the core of our thoughts. It's at the core of our decision-making, our will, at the core of all of our actions. It's at the core of our feelings. So it's the center of our being. This is, this is the heart. And when the psalmist says, I will, I will thank the Lord with all my heart, he's actually referring to his own integrity. When he says, I'm, I praise the Lord with all my heart, I praise the Lord with the center of my being, which means everything else is praising God, which means there's no contradiction between my thoughts and my actions and my words and my decisions and my praise. There's a, there's a perfect integrity there. There's no conflict. You're not saying one thing with your mouth and doing another thing with your life. And I'm reminded here of what the prophet says, what God says through the prophet Isaiah 29, 13. He, he rebukes Israel. He says of Israel at the time, you draw near me with your mouth. You honor me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. So this speaks to the integrity of our praise. We worship God with our whole lives, with our whole being. Secondly, the psalmist says that he gives thanks in the company and the congregation of the upright. Now, of course, we can praise God in solitude. And actually, Jesus himself commands us in Matthew chapter 6 to go into your closet Go by yourself, close the door, no distractions, turn off the cell phone, and pray. So there is a time for praising God, for praying to God in solitude. And if you read through the Gospels, you'll notice that many times throughout his life, Jesus would go off by himself and pray. He would stay up all night and pray in solitude. So there's nothing wrong with that. Of course we can praise God in our own quiet time, day by day. But the emphasis here is on praising God in the company and congregation of the upright. And again, I I think this was mentioned either in an opening prayer or in, in one of the songs. The fact that we have been adopted by God's Spirit into the family of God. We're sons of God. We've been made members of the body of Christ. And if we've been made members of the body of Christ, that means our praise is corporate. We worship God, we give thanks to God together. And that's what the psalmist has in view here. It's in the congregation, it's in the company. And even that word, notice it's two words, congregation, the gathered community, we've congregated, we praise God together, but also company. And that word company in English, it comes from a Latin word that literally means the gathering of those who eat bread. 
A companion is someone that you share bread with, that you eat bread with. So it's the congregation and company of the upright. And notice how that congregation and company is described. There's a qualification here. It's not just any congregation. It's not just any company. It's the congregation and company of the upright. Now this is significant. It's not just in any church that you praise God rightly. You praise God in a church where you have a congregation of the upright, of the just. And to be upright means to live your life according to God's law, according to God's word. So we worship in the congregation of those who are biblically faithful, who are living their their lives according to God's word. This is what it means to be upright. In a congregation, in a church where God's word is rightly taught, where there's right doctrine, where the Heidelberg Catechism is read out in a worship service. And this is actually, the, really at the core of it, this is what's meant by orthodoxy. Because the word doxa, it can mean, it can come from doke, meaning thought or opinion, and we tend to think of oh, orthodox, are you orthodox? Do you have the right doctrine, the right theology? But doxa also means glory. It also means worship, a doxology. It's a word of praise to God. The congregation of the orthos, orthos just means straight. You go to the orthodontist, you get your, your teeth straightened. Orthodoxy means the congregation of the right worshipers. And the right worshipers are those who are congregated in obedience and submission to God's word. That's the congregation. And they're the company around God's table. That's why the preaching of God's word, the celebration of the Lord's Supper, are the two central features, aspects, components, whatever word you want to use, of Christian worship. So we praise God in the congregation, in the company of the upright, under God's word, around God's table. So how do we praise God? We praise God with our whole hearts, and we praise God in the company, in the congregation of the upright. Thirdly, it says that uh, it points to those who fear the Lord. Right at the end of the psalm, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. The fear of the Lord. We'll actually have a chance next week to look at the fear of the Lord a bit more. And I'll say why that's the case in a moment. But simply put, I think a a nice definition of the fear of the Lord is this. What is the fear of the Lord? What does it mean to practice the fear of the Lord? It's reverent, obedient adoration. Reverent, obedient adoration. I think Psalm 2 captures this well. Psalm 2 says this about the kings of the earth. I think it's verse 11. The kings of the earth are called to serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. And I like that second phrase there. I think it captures it well. Rejoice with trembling. There's a reverent, obedient adoration, a sense of the awesomeness of God, of the holy love of God, a rejoicing with trembling, a serving, serving the Lord with fear. And I think Calvin captures this well. What is it? What does a person who fears the Lord look like? This is what he says. A person who fears the Lord so reverences and adores and loves God that he would tremble to sin even if there were no hell. 
Let me read that again. A person who fears the Lord so reverences and adores and loves God that he would tremble to sin even if there were no hell. This is the, this is the rejoicing with trembling, the reverent, obedient adoration. And I like what uh, Isaiah, again, God through the prophet Isaiah. This is Isaiah 66, verses 1 and 2. I think this captures it as well. Thus says the Lord, verse 1, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me and what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. It's a reference to the works of creation. But this is the one to whom I will look. God says he's looking for someone. This is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. This is what Psalm 111 means by practicing the fear of the Lord. It means cultivating the spirit of humility, contrition in your heart. It means trembling at his word, rejoicing with trembling, trembling at his word. This means that when we praise God in Christian worship, there's no place for flippancy. We don't just sort of waltz in here and sit down, okay, I'm going to sing a few songs. There's no place for flippancy. I was having lunch with a fairly well-known, at least in Canada, theologian, evangelical theologian named Dennis Nian. And I asked him, I said, what do you think is the biggest challenge facing the church in Canada? What's the biggest problem with the church in Canada? And he responded with one word. He said, flippancy. Flippancy. He actually said, there's too many happy pagans in church. Flippancy. We're not practicing the fear of the Lord in the church in Canada. So we need to cultivate what God says he's looking for. A humble and contrite spirit, trembling at his word. Finally, the last thing that we see here is remembrance. And remember that this is something that we talked about last week in Psalm 63. David was on his bed in the midst of the enemies surrounding him in the darkness and the watches of the night. He remembers that God has been his help. I remember that you have been my help. And this is what this psalm does. It's recounting the great works of redemption. It's remembering. And we praise God by remembering. I have a practice with my kids. Every meal that we sit down together before we pray, I ask them, Leah, what are you thankful for? Samuel, what are you thankful for, for at dinner at night? What are you thankful for today? What happened today that you're thankful for? Sam, after he's discovered water, I'm thankful for water. He said that. I'm thankful for water. Oftentimes, you know, this is a kind of a nice word of uh, comfort and assurance. Oftentimes, Samuel says, I'm thankful for you. I love you, he says that to me. And I love mommy and I love Leah. But what are you thankful for? And the reason I do this is because I want my kids to be going through the day making a note of things they're thankful for, looking for God's blessing. And if you're remembering and recounting, you'll have a greater awareness of God's goodness, his grace, his mercy. You'll have your eyes opened. You'll have your ears attuned to his mercy, to his blessing. Jeremiah, in his Lamentations, Lamentations 3, says that uh, his mercies are new every morning. And do you experience that every morning, new mercies? But by remembering, by, by having this practice of going through the day and just making a note of the good things that you're thankful for, 
You'll cultivate the spirit of thanksgiving and gratitude. And this is something that ought to characterize Christians. We're a thankful bunch. We're a grateful lot. That should be our reputation. In our families or our workplaces, that guy's thankful. That girl is grateful. It's the spirit of thanksgiving. Listen to what Paul says. He says in Ephesians 5, 21, Give thanks always and for everything. Well, there you go. Always and for everything. To God, the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So regularly be recounting, be remembering and thanking God for his goodness. And the Psalms are a good place to go for that. Psalms are in, in, they're, they're a training ground for thanksgiving. We can read through the Psalms and we find there a spirit of gratitude and thanksgiving being cultivated. So we see these four things. First, the fact that we're called to give thanks with our whole heart. It says something about the integrity of our worship. Secondly, we give thanks. We worship, praise God, in the congregation and company of the upright. Thirdly, by practicing the fear of the Lord. And finally, by remembering, by recounting God's acts of redemption in our lives. So Psalm 111, it tells us why we ought to praise God, and it shows us how we ought to praise God. And when we do this, when we start to become those kinds of people who are thankful, who are grateful, who are constantly praising God, remembering his goodness, remembering his mercies and his blessing, something happens to us. At first, it may be kind of a disorienting effect, but it actually reorients our lives. I think the tendency outside of Christ, and I mean, I struggle with this myself, I think we all do as Christians, the tendency is to be kind of inward-focused. And I think we all struggle from time to time with being self-centered, with being selfish. Uh, Martin Luther even defined sin as being curved in on yourself. This is sin, just curved in on yourself. And when you're curved in on yourself, you're not looking out. You're unaware of your neighbor. How do you love your neighbor if you're totally focused on yourself? And you're not worshiping God. But what this psalm does is it reorients us. We start to come out of ourselves and we look up and we look out and it's pointing us up. We're recounting God's mighty deeds, his wondrous works. And it reorients our attention towards God. And it reorients our attention towards our neighbor. And we'll see that next week because Psalm 111 is a mirror image of Psalm 112. And if you, most Bibles don't have them perfectly side by side, but in the Hebrew, this is called an acrostic psalm. That means every line of the psalm begins with a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Begins with A, goes all the way down to to Z. Psalm 111 is an acrostic. Psalm 112, an acrostic. They're the exact same length. They're mirror images of one another. And everything that you read about God in Psalm 111, you read about the righteous man in Psalm 12. God is gracious and merciful. He's steadfast. He's generous. You read that in Psalm 111. Flip over to Psalm 112. This is the description of the righteous man. You have the image of God, Psalm 112. You have God, Psalm 111. God in the image of God, right there. So it does something to us. It turns us out, and we become those who better reflect the image of God. And when people see us, they see Psalm 111. Because we we become those who reflect God. And our lives are a written testimony to God. 
And what happens then, too, is that there's this change in perspective. It also gives us, uh, it helps us view the circumstances of our lives in the right perspective. So that whatever struggles or temptations we may be going through, we start to see them in a different light. And I want us to notice something here. If you look in verse 3, God's righteousness endures forever. And then verse 5, he remembers his covenant forever. And then verse 8, his precepts are established forever. In verse 9, he has commanded his covenant forever. Forever, 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 forever. And then at the end of the psalm, the last line, his praise endures forever. Forever, 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 forever. So that we view the circumstances of our own lives from the perspective of forever. From the perspective of eternity. And we become those who are oriented towards eternity. Not temporal things. Ultimately, we're looking ahead. It pulls us out of ourselves. We're looking at God. We're aware of the needs of our neighbor. And we'll see how that bears out in Psalm 112. And we see things from the perspective of eternity. And that means that we, day by day, as we cultivate humility, as we cultivate gratitude, as we seek to praise God with integrity, with every aspect of our life, our lives become lights that show people God, that reflect God. And I want to conclude with what Peter says. It begins with a description of God's people, and it's very much a description of God's worshiping, faithful people. But notice the point of all this. The reason that we uh, worship on the one hand and witness on the other hand always go together. Worship on one hand, witness on the other hand, they always go together. Psalm 115, if we were to read on from 111, says that we reflect what we worship. If we worship idols, we'll begin to look like idols. If we worship the true God, we'll begin to look like the true God. That means right worship in here isn't just something that is relevant or important for here. It's not limited to the congregation or the company of the upright, because the congregation and the company of the upright aren't congregated forever. They're congregated at certain times, but they go out. And you go out, and your worship informs, it reorients, it shapes your life in such a way now that you're a witness to the gospel. So worship and witness always go together. And I conclude with 1 Peter 2.9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, And notice why. There's a purpose for all of this. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. This is a psalm that celebrates the excellencies of God. And as a people who pray this psalm, who sing this psalm, and begin to reflect and live out this psalm, our lives become a proclamation of the excellencies of God that are celebrated in this psalm. Let's pray. Lord God Almighty and Everlasting Father, we thank you for the gift of your word to us. Thank you for the gift of the psalms which teach us how to pray. They teach us how to repent. They teach us about you. They teach us how to live. They teach us how to praise. And we thank you for the instruction of this psalm, which teaches us how to praise you. And we ask that as those who worship you aright in the company and congregation of the upright, 
That we would be those whose faces are lifted up and are beaming, are shining with the light of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that we would see the fruit of our worship in the light of our witness. And I don't know where each of my brothers and sisters gathered here today, where they work, the challenges that they face. Many, I'm sure, struggle in their own family with brothers and sisters or relatives who aren't believers. But I pray that you would write the excellencies, the wonders, the grace, the mercy, the faithfulness, the justice that's celebrated in this psalm upon their lives in such a way that those who don't know you would see them and see written in their lives the testimonies of these wondrous works that are recounted here. And so would turn to you in repentance and faith and find life. I pray that you would renew our appetite for Scripture day by day. Even those passages of Scripture that are difficult for us, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would grant us the insight on how to read those when we're troubled by something. Give us something like verse 7 here, which tells us how we ought to understand that. The conquest of Canaan is difficult, but it's a demonstration of your faithfulness and justice. And Lord, I ask that as we're nourished by your word day by day, even as we're gathered around our tables with families and loved ones and nourished by actual bread, that we would also be feasting on the bread of life, that we would be recounting and remembering together your, your great acts of redemption. Lord, make us a grateful and thankful people. We ask it for the praise of your glory. In Jesus, in, pre, in, in the precious and powerful name of Jesus, amen.